Uh, but let's ask God to help us as we come to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you and your kindness would work now by your spirit, that the reading and preaching of your word would be for the building up of your people, for the salvation of those not yet following Jesus, uh, and for the glory of your Son. Uh, please, Father, give me words and clarity now to speak faithfully as I should, and grant in your kindness ears to hear and understanding, uh, that we would see and savour the love of the Lord Jesus and be moved to live for him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, quite a few years ago, I was uh, at a large, well-known church uh, in Sydney, and I joined with thousands of others uh, and was treated to what I think can fairly be described as a high-quality stage uh, production. There was a large quality band uh, that led sing, uh, the singing of familiar songs. People sang loudly, they clapped, they cheered. Uh, and for the most part, it was a highly encouraging experience, very impressive. Uh, but then the moment came after the talk where we were encouraged to stand, lay our hands on the person in front of us and pray for them. Uh, and we were encouraged that this was going to be a deeply spiritual moment where we would connect with God's spirit and ask for the words to pray as we lay hands on them. Uh, now, for those of you that uh, know me, this was a confronting moment. Uh, would I embrace the new experience despite the deeply uncomfortable nature of stranger touching? Uh, would I fake a heart attack? Uh, or just quietly excuse myself before someone grabbed my shoulders and I was trapped, which did happen to me in a Congo line at a wedding once. Um, but I wonder how you would feel in that moment. And maybe to work that out, let's do it now. Let's all stand. No, no, we won't. We won't do that. But I imagine for, for some of you, uh, you would be quietly or quickly reaching for your keys. Uh, while others actually might be quite open and excited about the experience. But it raises for us the important question of what actually is meant to be taking place in church as we gather. Uh, what does a spirit-filled church actually look like? And that question is of particular concern for 1 Corinthians 14 that we're going to unpack this week and next. And as I've mentioned already, this chapter, it's the conclusion of the section that's been going since the start of chapter 12, as Paul addressed what makes us truly spiritual. This is a very important question for the Corinthian church. And hopefully you can remember that uh, he, to answer that, he said the true sign of the presence of the Spirit was actually to confess Jesus as Lord, back in chapter 12, verse 3. Every believer is spiritual as we share in the one spirit who then connects us to other believers as the body of Christ. And this one body is made up of different parts, all by the same spirit who are given gifts to use to make the body strong as each part does its work. So all Christians are given gifts by the spirit, but they are given them not for the individual, but for the common good, chapter 12, verse 7. That is to benefit others. But confessing Jesus as Lord, being part of the body of Christ and equipped with gifts by the Spirit of God, must be driven by love. 
the necessity and character of love was the focus two weeks ago in chapter 13. For without love, we are nothing. And it's so important that for the Christian, love must never be reduced to an optional extra or especially just a slogan on church material. Love is to take initiative. Love must be seen in action. So chapter 14 opens, verse 1, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Uh, Chapter 14, it's the conclusion of this section about being spiritual, and Paul's going to actually clarify now what love in action looks like with regard to gifts. Pursuing love has real application with the use of gifts because as God's people gather, Paul's going to show us how love will be applied by contrasting two gifts, prophecy and tongues. So why these two gifts? Well, clearly it's because they were of particular importance to the Corinthian church, a regular part of what was featuring in their gathering. Now, the Corinthians clearly valued these gifts, perhaps they because they were exciting, even miraculous or spiritual in nature. And perhaps it seems that either having or not having these gifts uh, had become a cause of either boasting or exclusion of pride or envy, and especially an issue of status within the church. And so Paul takes these two gifts and applies the necessity, the rule of love to their use and practice as the church gathers together. But it raises an important question, right? What are we actually talking about? What are these gifts? And it's especially important because I imagine that among us tonight, there will be varying degrees uh, of experience and probably conviction about these gifts, And I think it can be difficult to discern whether the phenomena of tongues and prophecy that is practiced and experienced in churches today is actually the same as what Paul is talking about in this chapter. But if you can cast your mind back to chapter 12, uh, Neil did briefly unpack the beginnings of a, a definition for these gifts as they were named in the list of gifts in chapter 12. Uh, And it's worth pointing out that what's said in chapter 14 really is the most we're told about both prophecy and tongues in all of the New Testament. So let's consider tongues. Uh, Clearly, it's the ability to speak words or a language that is not known or understood to the one speaking it, but also to those who hear it, unless the gift of interpretation is given also by the Spirit. Now, whether what is being said is an actual human language, a a known language, I think it's hard to be sure. Clearly, in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, the speaking was another known human language. Now, not known to the person speaking it, but known to those who heard it individually. But what Paul is describing in chapter 14 seems different to that. I see, tongues is about speaking to God in verse 2 of chapter 14. Uh, in prayer or in praise, in song, in verse 15. Uh, The words or the language spoken uh, by that person, they are unintelligible, says Paul, unless the interpretation is given by the gift of the Spirit. Uh, See, it's not really, he's not saying that someone might just hear and understand the words you're saying as if it's like, yes, that's German. No, they actually need an, an interpretation by the Spirit. But whether it's a known language or a human language or even the language of angels or any other kind of language, 
Clearly, tongue speaking is not babbling or rambling because it always has content. Now, whether that content is understood or not is dependent on interpretation being given. But as Paul describes tongues as primarily here about speaking to God in prayer or in singing in praise in verses 13 to 15, his point is to stress that tongues as a gift edifies, builds up the individual who has the gift in verse 4, not others, unless it's interpreted. But prophecy, on the other hand, builds up the church because it involves intelligible words from God. They come uh, from revelation to the person by the Spirit, and they have the broader effect of encouragement, strengthening, and consolation or comfort, verse 3. Uh, And we have some examples of prophecy in the book of Acts, for example. There's the prophecy of a coming famine uh, or prophecy about Paul's arrest if he goes down to Jerusalem. The references are in the handout for you. And it's clear in the New Testament that the prophecy that's being described is different from the prophecy we get in the Old Testament, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, where when those prophets speak, they speak the authoritative word of God that is to be obeyed. But as we'll hear next week in 1 Corinthians 14, the gift of prophecy is to be tested or weighed against the authoritative word of the apostles. And much more could be said about both these gifts, and you may want to ask questions afterwards or next week in the Q&A. But it is worth noting that in this chapter or in chapter 12, Paul actually doesn't give us definitions. He says that prophecy encourages, strengthens, and consoles, but that doesn't define prophecy because teaching and prayer and evangelism and many other forms of service and gifts also do that for us. You see, Paul's actually focused on their effect and how they are to be exercised in the gathered church based on what builds up the church, and that's point two. Pursuing love And what builds up the church is love in action and using and seeking gifts that will build up the church. So in verses 1 to 5, Paul makes it clear that prophecy is to be preferred over tongues for that reason. See, the one who speaks in tongues, verse 2, speaks to God in words that he doesn't understand. They are mysteries of the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to the church for their encouragement, verse 3, strengthening and consolation. So love will prefer prophecy in verse 4 because tongues builds up the individual while prophecy builds up the church. Now Paul's cautious there in verse 5 to show that he's not suggesting he's got anything against tongues. It's a gift of the Spirit after all. He says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so the church may be built up. Now, it's worth noting on verse 5 that Paul clearly does not expect all the Corinthians can or will speak in tongues or prophesy. He actually made that very clear back in chapter 12. The Spirit gives gifts to God's people just as he sees fit and he gives them diversely. The point of verse 5 is clearly to stress its value and benefit. Remember, Paul wished that all would be single in chapter 7. But even as a good gift from God, in the gathering of God's people, prophecy is preferred because it builds up the church. 
That's what he means by greater. They are not a greater Christian in in the sense of quality or essence, but greater in function of what it does to the gathering. And then what really follows in uh, all the way through to verse 19 is just one extended argument to make that point. And so in verses 6 to 12, Paul says prophecy builds up because unlike tongues, it speaks intelligible words that benefit those who hear it, verse 6. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will you benefit? How will it benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy uh, or teaching? And it is a bit difficult in uh, verse 6 there if Paul is describing four kinds of speech or two or just one. Uh, Now, my gut feel is that he is describing both content and form. Uh, That is, that it's revelation that comes through prophecy or knowledge that comes through teaching. Uh, But either way, the benefit is coming from this speech because the words are clear and intelligible, which he then highlights with three illustrations. Uh, The first one is from music, verse 7. Instruments produce clear and distinct notes that make them recognisable, And that's what makes music good. Just think of all of you that have learned the recorder. Uh, The second second is from battle in verse 8, the bugle. It's kind of like a trumpet. Uh, It's essentially, it's sounded to alert the soldiers to prepare for battle. And this is a really good illustration, I think, because if you were to picture hundreds of soldiers sleeping in their tents while the opposing army is coming... It would be pretty disastrous, wouldn't it, if the distorted sound of a bugle was confused for the digestive issues of the guy sleeping next to you. So we get that one. And the third one, verse 11, I imagine is familiar to lots of us. It's the idea of being a foreigner. Where you're surrounded by people who don't speak your language, it's actually alienating and isolating. And the illustrations work together to make a pretty clear point in verse 9. Unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what be spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. So when it comes to love in action with gifts, verse 12, Paul says, So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. And then Paul wants to leave no ambiguity about what he's saying. So he applies that principle again to tongues. Firstly, he says to the one who speaks in tongues, they must pray for interpretation, verse 13. And if no interpretation is given, then remain silent. And the reason is quite straightforward, because if you don't understand what you're saying, how can anyone else? Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the Spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. Paul's saying our spirit and our mind, our understanding must be engaged when we praise God together. Now he's again cautious just as he was back in verse 5 and also pastoral. He's saying none of this is to denigrate the gift of tongues. Paul himself says, I speak in tongues. It's a great gift that he thanks God for that he enjoys in private. 
See, it's probably likely that the Corinthians had never heard Paul speak in tongues. Maybe they actually questioned his spirituality because he didn't. But Paul's just saying that's because it's actually very clear how tongues should be applied in the church. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The contrast is stunning. 10,000 verses 5. Jesus is a great saviour versus a 90-minute tongue session. And Paul says, I'll take the former. You see, that's love in action. It's both deeply practical and entirely focused on what builds up and benefits others. Even if that means our our personal preference, our personal enjoyment are not the focus because that is love applied. And I think it's worth pausing at this point to actually ask if that is our priority and conviction. Not simply that church would run in a way that benefits and builds up all through intelligible words, but actually that my attendance, my participation, my service would be for that goal too. Because we live in a consumer society where even church can just be reduced to being about my personal benefit and enjoyment that where we sit, who we talk to, and especially whether we serve or how we serve are all through the filter of what benefits me. These are actual responses I've had when talking to people about joining rosters. I would do PA, but I don't want to have to get here that early. Uh, I could do pack up, but then I wouldn't be able to talk to everyone I want to. I don't want to do welcoming because then I would have to talk to everyone. Like... See, these are all driven by self. And so this view of gathering where our service is driven by love and what builds up others confronts our desire to make everything, especially church, about me, my preference, my comfort, my enjoyment. So do you want this gathering week after week to actually build up everyone or just you? Uh, Brett McCracken, he's written a really helpful book called Uncomfortable, where he says, for too long, the consumer logic of Christian culture has been find a church that meets your needs. Not only is it coldly transactional and devoid of covenantal commitment, it is also anti-gospel. And I hope you can see why. Remember, Paul is asking if we are so captured by the love we have received in Jesus that we heard about in chapter 13, that we can hear a call to pursue love and think that I want our gathering, yes, I even want my participation and my service in that gathering to be for the building up of others because that's what love wants. No, it's what love pursues. But more than that, it's actually what we need. You remember back in verse 3, Paul says that prophecy is preferred because it uh, strengthens, encourages, and consoles. That is, comforts. And why are they so important to the gathering? Because as God's people, we regularly always need those things. 
don't know if you've ever realised, this right now is the gathering of the easily discouraged, the regularly stressed, the constantly distracted, and the walking weary. As Ed Welsh says in his great little book, Side by Side, that I think lots of us are going to study next term, we are needy people gathering, but we are also needed. And so this other person-centred, focused gathering that builds up is a gift from God for our encouraging, strengthening and comfort. But will we invest? Will we pursue love? Will we put aside what we prefer, what would make us look great or feel great for the sake of others because of the love of Christ? And let's be honest, to be that kind of church, to be that kind of Christian, you have to be doing what we were urged to do at the end of the sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, and that is to grow in the knowledge of the love of Jesus for you. Basking in his costly love for us that we're about to remember and celebrate in the supper will then promote and sustain our love for others. But Paul knows that is a big question especially for the Corinthians. It flies in the face of what they're doing. It flies in the face of what they want. It's countercultural to their culture that, like ours, glorifies the pursuit of self-fulfillment and self-promotion, even if that's at the expense of others. And so to make that clear, Paul then says that their practice, their way of thinking, it's actually entirely inconsistent with the gospel and a sign of their immaturity. They need to grow up. Verse 20. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil, but adult in your thinking. Uh, The word adult, it's literally the word for being mature, as it was translated in verse 13, as the ESV has. And Paul is saying that their current practice, their love of tongues and the way they're going about it, it's a sign that they're just spiritual babies. You see, these are choice words from Paul that no doubt would have cut deep and hit hard to the Corinthians who valued themselves as the spiritual elite. Uh, It seems that the Corinthians wanted to measure their maturity or perhaps even their authenticity as Christians by the intensity of, of their spiritual experiences. And I actually think we can relate to that. We can sympathize because that's exactly what we still see happening today. Why are so many churches taken by tongues and prophecy? Why do still so many flock to churches that are offering divine encounters or miraculous signs all under the banner of being truly spiritual? Well, I think it's because there is something attractive, perhaps exotic and seductive, exciting about this idea of power and what's sold to us as authentic spiritual experiences that we're often told are lacking from our current lives. Sometimes we're even told that we're not truly Christian until we've experienced these things. But no, says Paul, these are not signs of being the real deal. The way you're going about it is a sign of spiritual infancy. And why? Well, because their values and their practice not only are a lack of love, not only are they being shaped by their culture, but it's actually a direct contradiction of God's word. And he shows them that by quoting Isaiah in verse 21. He says, it's written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues 
by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Uh, Paul's quoting Isaiah 28. And in that passage, uh, God is speaking to Israel because they have rejected his warnings, rejected his word about their sin. And because they won't listen, God says, I'm going to speak to you a different way. I'm going to speak to you through people of other tongues, the lips of foreigners. And he's talking about the Assyrians who invaded and captured Israel in 722 BC. God's saying, you know what? Uh, I'm speaking to you and you won't listen. And I've promised my judgment will come on you. And you'll know that I'm speaking to you because foreigners are going to march down the street speaking in their own language because they just captured your city. That's how I'm going to talk to you, says God. And so God's people hearing a foreign language that they do not understand is not something to be strived for. It's a sign of judgment for those who won't listen to God. And so Paul says, verse 22, speaking in tongues then is intended as a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. And you can imagine the Corinthians objecting, Paul, like what could be a better sign of God's power and supernatural presence than tongues? And Paul says, yeah, it's a sign, but it's not a good one. It's a sign of judgment and exclusion, that you don't belong and you aren't listening to God. And so Paul applies what these unbelievers who may be present in the church would be thinking. They're not impressed by the tongue speaking, verse 23. They're concerned. Will they not say, you are out of your minds? And I think it is just so deeply tragic that that exact thought and response has been had by so many people who have gone into churches across the world and even in our city and experienced the very practice that Paul condemns in this passage where unintelligible words and self-promotion reign supreme in the gathering. So then Paul applies the exact same question to prophecy. What will intelligible words do for the unbeliever who visits? Verse 24. If all are prophesy and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The, secret of his, uh, the secrets of his heart will be revealed and as a result he will fall face down and worship God proclaiming God is really among you. Those words in verse 25 are very deliberate. That God is among you alludes to two different Old Testament prophecies from Isaiah and Zechariah. Again, the, the references are in the handout for you. Prophecies where God promised he would do such a miraculous salvation that even the non-Jews, the Gentiles, would come and confess and worship the God of Israel because God is only God the God of Israel revealed to his people. And so do you see what Paul's doing? He's doing two things. Firstly, he's showing that the clear, God-focused, intelligible words not only build up believers, but also bring people to worship God in repentance. You see, intelligible words are necessary, are vital, not just for discipleship, 
but for our evangelism and mission as a church. But secondly, Paul's again drawing them back to the key issue, that their approach to gifts is neither shaped by love or by God's word. It just highlights their spiritual immaturity. So they need to grow up, to be spiritually mature, not by chasing spiritual experiences and self-promotion, but by shaping their understanding of God and his blessings by listening to the word of God. That's why Paul will go on to tell them that prophecies have to be tested against the apostolic word. But where does that actually leave us? Because I imagine for some of you tonight, you've followed along and in God's kindness, maybe you've even understood more of the passage as we've gone through it. But you can't help but ask, like, where are they? (laughs) Where are these so-called gifts of prophecy and tongues? If they are to be used among the gathering, as that's the clear point of what Paul's saying, where are they here? But I think we need to stop and ask first, is... Paul stipulating what should happen in every church or regulating what is already happening in the Corinthian church. And clearly it cannot be the first. Uh, There's no mention of scripture reading or teaching, no mention of the Lord's Supper and many other aspects. Uh, Paul is clearly not saying here is the to-do list for every church service. And this is especially confirmed by the almost complete silence on the question of prophecy in tongues in the rest of the New Testament. The gift of tongues is not mentioned outside of this letter or the book of Acts, while prophecy is mentioned uh, a few more times, but it's almost never mentioned with reference to what will take place in the gathering. But what we do find about prophecy, even in a young church like the Thessalonians, they seemingly gave no time for prophecy and were in danger of despising the gift of prophecy. And I think you can probably imagine why, because how easy is it to fake and abuse? How often has the phrase, God has told me, been attached to words for purely selfish purposes? And it grieves me to say this is especially in connection with dating God has told me you're the one. But Paul does not expect that every church will have these gifts among their regular gathering. Nor is he stipulating that they must. Uh, And this seems especially the case as we consider what Paul writes much later in life in what are called the pastoral epistles, the letters to Timothy and to Titus, where he gives his instructions for how the church is to be governed and to behave, and he does so without reference to prophecy and tongues. But what we do get in those letters is the provision and priority of teaching and reading God's word, passed down by the apostles as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, We'll do more on this next week, but just a taste now. 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. 1 Timothy 4, until I come. 
Give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. You see, as Paul writes these kind of final instructions on what the church needs to do, it's neither prophecy nor, nor tongues, but teaching. The clear proclamation of the apostolic gospel, then applied to every aspect of life, that will ground us in the love of Christ, shape every part of our life together, cause God's people to mature and especially bring people to repentance and the true worship of God. And so rather than kind of speculating about where the gifts are or especially chasing churches where these gifts might be given particular prevalence, we must not miss the priority that Paul is giving clear, intelligible words in our gathering that point to Jesus and build up God's people. And I hope you can see how clearly that priority does shape what we do here. It's why I've been so thankful to be part of this church and benefited from its unashamed commitment to read and teach God's word, to have clear and intelligible words in our singing and in our praying that we can all say amen to. And to see God work by his spirit through all of that, to convict, encourage, strengthen, mature, and yes, even save. Because I can hope you, I hope you can see that there is nothing unspiritual or boring about that. Because churches like ours have and will be accused of it. But a commitment to reading and teaching God's word, to using our gifts for the common good, to speaking, praying and singing intelligible words are all deeply spirit-filled activities that point to and exalt Jesus. So do not be allured into thinking that there is something lacking in your Christian life or in your church experience. Do not think as the Corinthians did that there was something superior about certain gifts and certain experiences. No, if you want spiritual experiences, give yourself to the preaching of the gospel. To praying for the maturity of God's people, give yourself to evangelism for the salvation of sinners and you will see God at work by his spirit. Do not let fascination with gifts either distract you from or diminish the wonder of the provision of God's word. Give yourself to God's word, to reading it, hearing it, taught and studying it. Because as Paul told us back in 1 Corinthians 2, we can only understand it as God works in us by the Holy Spirit. Have God's word shape all your life as the Spirit renews your mind and conforms your character to be more like Jesus. Let the gospel ground you in the immeasurable love of Jesus so it will then motivate and shape your service of others with the gifts the Spirit has given you. Build up the church by your service and by speaking intelligible words that point to Jesus. Paul beautifully combines these two things in Ephesians 4.15 with which we finish. He says, it's by speaking the truth in love, the truth of the gospel to each other, while serving with the gifts God has given us, that we grow and build up the body of Christ. 
So let's be that kind of people, that kind of church for the glory of our Saviour. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the immense privilege of being Jesus' people, the body of Christ united by our confession that Jesus is Lord, the indwelling of your spirit. Please capture our hearts now with the love of Christ so that we would love, we would delight to build up the body using our gifts and our service to build up and strengthen others and by speaking the truth in love. Father, please use us to encourage, strengthen and comfort that we would be mature in our thinking and Christ-like in our service. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.